We believe running is freedom and empowerment. We believe running solves problems and makes people happy. We even believe that if more people run, the world will be a better place. We believe in running because it is our passion. This is the Big Peach Running Company Run ATL Podcast with your host, Mike Cosentino. Hello, friends. It's Mike Cosentino, founder and co-host here of your Run ATL Podcast. Once again, we're coming to you in the midst of the coronavirus public health challenge. And I will tell you, I remain so enthusiastic and very grateful for so much. And yet at the same time, my traditional opening as our bed of music starts to fade does suggest that we tamp it down at least just a little bit. D2 as we recognize that this is a real struggle for all of us in our community as a society and around the globe. So last thing we want to do is not be respective of what it is that is happening around us. Yeah. And I mean, the news changes every day and it seemed like you know, maybe we were going a couple of days, maybe even three days without a whole lot of change. And we got into a new normal. But as we're sitting here, we're taping this on Thursday and we're waiting for an official announcement from the governor, whether there will be a shelter in place for the entire state. We don't know for sure. We're waiting on the details. We do feel confident that that's going to happen. So for us as a business, you know, we have meetings on a daily basis and, and calls and to try to figure out, well, what, what do we do? How do we pivot? How do we change things? Because, you know, we, we've got an operation to run. We've got, you know, people that we're responsible for and, 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 uh, you know, and we, there's people out there that have need for the products and the service that we provide. So to do that, we've had to make some changes and, and make some adjustments and we'll continue to do so. But, you know, this is what will make us stronger and better and provide us with maybe new uh, avenues for people to connect with us and uh, for us to serve them as well. So true. And before we talk about a couple of those things, one thing that I am just so excited about, we really nailed it this time, in my opinion. We went deep in to our Rolodex as we thought about, well, what is the appropriate content given all that is going on? For those who have not listened to the first episode that we did in the midst of this pandemic, certainly you'll want to do so. This time, what we wanted to be able to do was find a friend of ours who could give us not only an indication of what it's like to be on top. And D2, we keep saying this, coming out of 2019, both personally and professionally, wow, we had the Olympic marathon trials coming, coming off of a really good year for Big Peach Running Company, some things that we were looking forward to personally. And now, all of a sudden, this happens. And when you think about our featured conversation for this episode, he knows what it's like to be on top and that he also knows what it's like not to have things go his way and then have things get worse. But what he also is a bona fide expert in is hanging in there, making changes, figuring it out and being better for what it is that he comes out to the other side from. And so Mr. Dick Beardsley, the person that most of you know as part of that duel in the sun, April 19th, 1982. He is our featured conversation, D2. What a special conversation we had. Before we get to it, let's unpack a little bit of what's going around going on around this corona. First of all, you mentioned we have an operation to run. I do believe by April 3rd, it will only be 
shipments from Big Peach Running Company. We've got new ways to be able to do that. Certainly for sure, you can continue to call our stores, find all that information online. We want to be of service. This is a time, the pedestrian active lifestyle, it matters. In addition, brand new virtual fit process, so cool. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that we're we're doing because we're you know we're already kind of going that direction whether we were going to the shelter in place or not just because we're limiting you know contact and there's people that need help that in the past we've had to do face to face one on one inside you know uh, you know one of our stores and now that the world has changed at least for now and um, so this is a service that we're going to do that you will be able to to go through our website and schedule an appointment. And um, you'll receive an email with a link to do a video conference. And I think we're going to end up doing this uh, with GoToMeeting when it's all said and done. But uh, you can then um, speak with one of our you know, expert fitters and we'll walk you through the same type of scenario that we would, whether you were in the store, we'll ask you the questions that we would normally ask as to kind of, you know, um, what are your needs are, what kind of pain, what kind of injuries, um, and you'll get this exact same experience except for the actual trying the shoes on. What we'll do is based on everything and the information that we gather um, over this video conference is make some recommendations based on what you've worn in the past, um, maybe even looking at sizing as well and make some adjustments in sizing based on what you've worn in the past and provide you with some options. And then you can then decide at that point whether, you know, what, which, shoe you would like to purchase and you could either do that online or over the phone video through video conference and we'll mail that to you um, as well and of course like anything else we still offer our 100% guarantee if it doesn't work you're able to ship it right back and if you you know if if things get lifted and we're back to normal operating hours then you can walk it in but that may be still some time several weeks maybe you know longer than that but for the time being yes you still uh, can return something if it does not work for you so so true we've been working hard on that thanks to you for all of your work on that also in near term we will be rolling out a brand new e-commerce platform so people can find more inventory than ever from big peach running company at our online site all this information again at bigpeachrunningco.com so definitely check that out d2 we're not the only ones in our industry that have been busy and making pivots in terms of how we serve the marketplace in this very unique time Yes, as, as we all know, we've watched the news that there is a shortage for um, personal protection equipment. And I mean, kudos to um, the brands and uh, that are out there who are switching the operation, who are halting their regular business and innovating and trying to help those out. So shout out goes to Superfeet, who um, is currently uh, manufacturing and, and hoping to provide, you know, 30,000 um, PPE masks for hospital, hospitals and medical facilities. New Balance is still working with the FDA, but they're hoping that by mid-April, they'll have 100,000 PPE masks per week. Um, so that's, that's awesome. And then Brooks um, will be giving 10,000 pairs of shoes to healthcare workers. So these brands are kind of stepping up and trying to help out in ways that, you know, we never would have expected. Um, some are innovating, some are doing charitable type work to support those on the front lines. So kudos to them. Uh, you know, as, as we've all been saying, we're all in this together and those, uh, those brands are, are proving it and, and, and living it. Very, very true. 
congratulations really to all of you who are also doing what is required, even if it is just abiding by those regulations and recommendations. If you are helping those first responders, those frontliners, my goodness, we cannot thank you enough. Like we've said before, our hearts and prayers are with those and those families who are in the midst of this because you are a patient or a loved one is a patient. And certainly for those who are the first responders, those in our hospitals and medical facilities, my goodness, we cannot thank you enough. Our hearts and prayers are with you every single day. And D2, this episode, so cool. And I think so timely. Dick Beardsley, for those of you who are not familiar with that name, I mentioned the date earlier that he and Alberto Salazar towed the start line with other world-class runners, found themselves in a story that he tells us firsthand coming down the home stretch, literally and figuratively, of a race that is now referred to as the greatest marathon in American marathon history. Certainly, no doubt, that is true. But what Dick also shares with us relative to his own struggles, including things that have to do with our everyday concerns as a society, addiction, prescription medications not being used just for their original intent, PTSD, suicide, these are things that alongside a term like pandemic bring real meaning to what you said earlier, D2. We are all in this together. Dick, with his positive attitude, with his story, and with his definition of why hope so much exists, not only tells us, but shows us, demonstrates how true that is. Yeah, I mean, I I was familiar a bit with uh, Dick Beardsley, and you know, most of you know, just that he's an, was an awesome you know runner, and you know, uh, has you know probably considered a, a a hero to many in the elite world. Maybe not to those that are just more started running later in life. Um, but uh, listening to him speak, it, it just it, it, you know, you you just you really get into his stories, um, and. If, you, you have nothing but empathy for him. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, there were several in there, that, you know, and I wish we could go into, you know, all of them. I'll just, I'll just leave it up for the, our listeners to listen to and pick up. But it's it's worth listening, uh, I would say, probably more than once. Um, it is now, and I've said this as soon as we got uh, recording, it's probably one of my favorite, you know, podcasts. When we do sessions. our episodes, when we pick our favorites, I don't doubt Dick Beardsley will end up on both of our lists. He is so humble and he said, feel free to do any editing. We looked at each other and you immediately shook your head. No, there will be no editing. So dear listeners, please know that we buy our own design and in full intention have let this go a little bit longer than most episodes. But what else do you have to do besides go for a walk or for a run? Put this incredibly inspirational conversation in your ears and understand that for everything that we go through, we can choose to be better for it. Dick Beardsley will be with us right after this brief message. Whether you're working from home or just staying at home to do your part in social distancing, we want to remind you to take a break and go outside. Go for a walk, run, or even a bike ride. Getting outdoors is a great way to get some exercise to not only improve your physical, but also your mental health during this time. Feel free to reach out to any of our locations or through social media for any help to keep you active during this time.
And welcome back to the Run ATL podcast. D2, so excited about this conversation, especially like we said in our introduction, the timing could not be better. We told you all a little bit about who our featured conversation is. What we did not mention in the intro is some terminology, phraseology, perhaps even a quotation that I just love to hear. I'm going to give you one more way to get to know Dick Beardsley before we bring him on. Every morning when I wake up, I try to wake with a smile on my face, enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. And man, does he continue to live a life that reflects that. Dick Beardsley, thank you for joining us here on the Run ATL podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a, it's an honor to be on your show, that's for sure. Well, it is an honor to have you, and, and we've met each other a number of times, and every time I'm around you, I not only get this sense of just this infectious joy that you have for others and what you do, but I leave better for it. And I think we all need that these days is to be infected with something that is just feels so good and is something that's going to have positive and long lasting impact. And certainly you've done that in so many places around the world. And I think that at the same time, our listeners would be upset if I didn't take us back to the late 70s, early 80s, when you were really finding yourself as a runner. For all of us who are runners, maybe take us there first and give us an indication of how you were feeling and ultimately how you were preparing to be the best runner that you could be. Well, Mike, you know, I, I was a latecomer to running. I, I didn't start running until I was a junior in high school. I was 17 years old. And the only reason I even got involved in running was I, I was such an outdoor kid. You know, I was a, started my own fishing guide business when I was 12. And I, you know, I hunted and fish and trapped and I was just super into the outdoors. But when I turned about, you know, 17, junior year in high school, girls, started kind of getting my attention a little bit and um but i was such a shy bashful kid that i couldn't even say hi to uh, hi to one let alone actually speak to one and or ask one out on a date but i noticed that a lot of the the guys in school that were good in various sports and would wear their high school letter jackets around they always had girls hanging around them so immediately i thought well gosh all i got to do is earn myself a letter jacket and the girls will come to me so like a lot of, you know, boys in high school, I decided, well, I'm going to go out for the football team. Well, you know, I'm six foot tall, weigh 135 pounds, soaking wet. And I remember that very first day of practice, I got gang tackled. And I remember when I got up out of that pile of guys and my helmet was on crooked and my shoulder pads were sticking out and my football pants were down to my ankles. And I'm thinking, there's not a girl alive that is worth going through this. <laughs> and I quit. And uh, I walked off the field. My, my entire football career lasted about 43 and a half minutes. And, you know, at the time, I was pretty devastated. I mean, what little self-esteem I had at that point in my life pretty much went right down the drain. But, you know, sometimes what we perceive as our huge disappointments in our lives sometimes turn out to be an incredible blessing. And, and there's no question that's the way it was for me. And I went out for the cross-country team. I never even heard about cross country, but a friend was telling me about it. So I showed up for my first day of practice and our coach says, all right, boys, line up out there in front of the school on the road. We're going to do the around the block run. Now, I'd never run before, 
But I thought, gosh, I'm determined enough and I'm stubborn enough that I can stay with my teammates and run around the block with them. So the coach blows his whistle. And anyhow, long story short, what they said was their around the block run was actually 3.2 miles long. Now, (laughs) that doesn't seem very far to me today. But back then, it seemed like forever. And believe it or not, I had to walk the last mile. In fact, by the time I got back to my high school parking lot, all my uh, teammates and my coach had already showered and gone home. But I remember when I crossed that imaginary finish line into our high school parking lot, I remember thinking, gosh, Dick, I don't know how far you just ran and walked, but you made it. And I'll just bet you, Dick, if you work real, real hard, if you do what your coach tells you to do, if you believe in yourself, have faith. I'll just bet you, Dick, you can get good enough to make the varsity squad, to earn the letter jacket, to get the date with a girl. And that was my whole inspiration, guys, at the time <laughs> to get into running was to get a date with a girl. And um, unfortunately, I, I was terrible. I, I mean, I did everything my coach told me to do. I showed up on time for practice never complained about a workout. I even ran on the weekends when I didn't have to, but I was uh, relegated to the JV team. And of course you don't earn a letter jacket being on the JV squad, but you know, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't taken aback by it. I thought, well, gosh, before next cross country season, I'm going to run all summer long and I'm going to come back. I'm going to make that varsity team. And fortunately that's what I did. And, and I never did qualify for a state meet Uh, here in Minnesota, but I'd fallen in love with this wonderful sport of distance running. And, you know, when a lot of people, when they look at my running resume now or look at some old videos from some of the bigger races I ran years ago, they think, you know, knowing I'm from Minnesota, a lot of people think, you know, I went to the University of Minnesota on a full ride scholarship and, and, um, but that's not the case. I, uh, I did, I did go to the University of Minnesota not on a scholarship, but not the one University of Minnesota most people think of. I went to the University of Minnesota at Waseca, a very small two-year agricultural college in Waseca, Minnesota, which is now a federal prison. So it kind of tells you about where I got my, um, you know, where, where I got my degree from, but that's a whole nother story. But I tell you guys, you know, I have a, I had a coach there, Coach John Folkrod. And, you know, especially in today's society, you know, you never know when you say something to somebody, whether it be positive or negative, you never know how it's going to affect you or that person at that moment, you know, later in the day, tomorrow, next week, next month, or years down the road. But one day after practice, Coach Folkrod put his arm around my shoulder and he says, you know, Dick, I really believe you can be as good of a runner as you want to be. And I never, ever forgot that. But I never, ever thought it would take me to the heights that I was fortunate to be taken to. That's for sure. Well, there's so much good stuff there, Dick, that we could just camp out on. And and first of all, you know, here in Georgia with this current situation, they just announced that school for those in high school and below will be canceled for the remainder of the year. And I feel especially bad for those seniors, you know, no state championship, whether it's track and field or another sport, no prom, no senior trips, all of those things that maybe are part of a lot of our existence, trying to get that date, trying to have that banquet with our team 
on the varsity or JV squad, all of those things now just wiped out. But what you mentioned that I think is a great reminder for all of us, and maybe especially those students who are disappointed that their season is over, is that the progress that you made in between that freshman and sophomore year was because of your commitment to what you were going to do in the off season to start to meet that potential that you had. And I think it's an awesome reminder for us wherever we may have potential and especially timely for those runners and perhaps all of those student athletes that now find themselves without the competition schedule that they would have otherwise had for the next couple of months, but now have to show the same discipline that you did. So you think about what your coach said, you can be as good of a runner as you want to be. What was it that you took from that that then transitioned you into saying, I want to run with some of the best marathoners in the world? Because to get that advice is one thing, but to obviously achieve targets and results like what you did with that advice as fuel is something altogether different. Take us to that decision that you ultimately say that this is what I need to do with it. This is true relative to being the runner I can be, but I'm going to put it against the best marathoners on the planet. Yeah. So when I was done with the University of Minnesota with Sika, my running had improved enough to where I actually got a, a partial scholarship and to run out at South Dakota State University in Brookings, South Dakota. And But when I was out there, I, I met a young gal and and, and we fell in love and we, were, we decided we were going to get married. And I thought, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm done with school. I got a two year degree. And the only reason I was actually even out there was so I could, you know, to be honest with you, to continue to run a little bit. So I moved back home and I was, you know, milking cows. And I, I hadn't run in probably three or four months because I was going to be getting married the following June. And, and um, one day I was getting ready to, to go out to the barn to milk cows and I walked out to the mailbox first and I got the mail and I came back into the house and threw it on the table. And I noticed one of my running magazines had come in the mail. So I had a little time. So I just kind of opened it up and, and there was an article in there on what it took to qualify for the 1980 Olympic marathon trials. You had to run two hours, 21 minutes and 56 seconds. Now I had run a couple of uh, two or three marathons and, when I was in college and just out of college and, and, but my, my best was about 11 or 12 minutes slower than that. But I'm standing there at the, you know, by the kitchen table in my dirty old coveralls. And I, all of a sudden I remember what coach Folkrod had mentioned to me about, I really believe Dick, you can be the best runner you want to be. And I thought, you know, I'm 21 years old or however old I was at the time. And I thought, you know, I can milk cows, do my fishing guide business when I'm in my thirties, forties, fifties and, and beyond, but they'll, there'll never be another time other than now to see what I can do with my running. And I remember right then and there, I decided I gotta, I gotta see what I'm, I'm capable of. And I, I, um, the next morning I got done with chores and I drove into the twin cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I found a, a one room apartment in a small town on the outskirts of the twin cities. And, it was going to cost me 400 bucks a month rent. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to come up with that every month, but I'll figure it out. And, and I started training, you know, not just twice a day, sometimes even three times a day. And fortunately my, my running continued to 
to uh, to get a little bit better, a little bit better. And where I finally did qualify for the 1980 Olympic marathon trials by two seconds, I, I ran the Manitoba International Marathon in Winnipeg, Canada. And uh, like I said, you had to run 221.56 and I ran 221.54 and I was just tickled pink. Well, that winter of 1980, I got real sick and I was still training through it. In fact, the doctors at one point thought I had leukemia because my hemoglobin and everything else was so low, but they finally figured it out that I just had a real bad case of uh, anemia. So they put me on an iron supplementation and and I, uh, I went into the Olympic trials as that was going to be my last race. And I, the only reason I went in to, to, to do it, I thought, you know, I can tell my kids and grandkids that the old guy was, you know, qualified for the Olympic trials and ran in it. So I went into the 1980 Olympic marathon trials in Buffalo, New York, with no, no idea. Just go in there to run, enjoy it. Well, I, um, I got into the race and I just, I felt really good and, I started picking people off and there was a couple hundred guys in the race that year. And long story short, I, uh, I finished 16th out of a couple hundred runners and ran 216.01. And it was the first time I'd ever broken two hours and 20 minutes, which for a marathoner is a big deal. And I wasn't halfway through the finish shoot when I thought I am not quitting now. And um, the rest is kind of history because if I would have gone in there guys and, you know, you know, finished the race, ran, you know, 222, 223 or something, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now. So, you know, it's 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 crazy how some things work out in our lives. And and I've always been one of these people that things are meant to be. And there's a reason why things happen. And there's a reason why things happen this way. And and then um, after that race, it gave me so much confidence. And I would go into races after the Olympic trials with the goal of not worrying about how fast I ran, because up to that point, I would run, I would put every mile split in a blue ink pen on my arm to try to hit a certain time. And then one day I'm, I'm getting ready for the 1980 uh, Olympic, or not, excuse me, the 1980 New York City Marathon. And I got up that morning before the race started and I started writing splits on my arm and to try to hit a certain time. And I got to about the third or fourth split I had written down and I stopped and I thought, you know, Dick, if you ever want to see if you can compete with the big boys, forget about time, just go out and, and hang as best you can. So that was my goal. I went into the New York City Marathon and, and um, I thought I'm going to run with the lead pack as long as I can. And Bill Rogers was going for his fifth consecutive New York City Marathon at that point. And Somewhere about 15 miles, I was in that lead group with Bill and a bunch of other top runners, and it was a very cold, windy, wet day, and we were going around a corner, and somehow Bill and I got our legs tangled up, and I went down like a lead ball and rolled a few times, and, and Bill went down, and of course, somebody stopped and helped Bill get up back up, and they just kind of kept running by, <laughs> by me, and, but I finally got up. And by the time I got up and realized what had happened, that lead pack was probably a block and a half, at least maybe two blocks in front of me. Well, instead of just taking my time to work back up to him, I took off. And just before we got to the Queensboro Bridge, I caught back up to the lead group again. So we're coming up over the bridge 
And I, I mean, I've got adrenaline coming out every open orifice I have on my body. <laughs> and about halfway across, I was feeling so good. I thought, man, I'm going for it. So I, I threw in a big surge and I opened up about a hundred yard lead as I came down off of the Queensboro Bridge onto First Avenue. And, you know, back then it was it was being telecast live on ABC Wide World of Sports with Jim McKay and Frank Shorter was the the other announcer. And I remember coming down onto First Avenue and that roar of the crowd, I, which I'd never heard before, it almost made me fall down. And I'm I'm running down First Avenue and all of a sudden I, I noticed something off to my right side and I look over and it's my coach, Bill Squires, in his Sunday go to, to church shoes on and he's sprinting alongside of me and he's, he, he starts yelling at me. He goes, Dickie, what in the hell are you doing? And I looked at him with a big smile. I go, coach, I'm winning the New York City Marathon. <laughs> well, I um, I ended up fading that, that day, but I ended up finishing ninth and ran 213.56, I think. And that was the, the time that Alberto Salazar debuted and, and ran 209.45 or something like that. But I finished ninth and I was tickled pink. And um, and even though I obviously didn't win or come within a, more than four minutes of, of winning the race, it gave me so much confidence. And so after that New York City race, including that race, after that, every race I went into, I could care less how fast I ran. My my number one goal was was always to try to win. Well, and, and it's amazing. You mentioned how you, you get a little bit of success at those Olympic trials, and then you say, gosh, I should keep doing this. And then you do, and then you have the experience in New York City, and it just crystallizes that this is something that you were almost designed to do. You mentioned a couple of things from that race there in the Big Apple that, of course, we've got to pull out, not before mentioning, for those of you who have not followed Dick's career perhaps as closely, it was barely 15 months later where he took that time in New York City further lowered it, ultimately set a record at a race that even us here in the South love because it's cooler temperatures and can be run in the summer in Duluth, Minnesota. That is Grandma's Marathon. And in 1981, Dick, you ran 209.37. And if my research is accurate, that was a record that held for over 30 years. So that was quite a day for you as well. Yeah, that was that was quite a deal. You know, I... Um... I, it held for, I think, 33 or 34 years. And, and you know, going after New York, it just was, um, I just really had fallen in love with this marathoning. And I was very fortunate. My body, I recovered very, very quickly. You know, back then, I, you know, I, I never really had any injuries or anything like that. And I loved training. I, and I, I just loved to, I put on a lot of miles at a, you know, probably faster than I, than I probably should have on most days. But, you know, I, I ran the, um, the, in, let's see, the January of 81, I ran the Houston marathon and finished second, about 20 seconds behind Bill Rogers. I ran like two twelve forty eight, I think. And then I get back from, from, um, Houston and I get a call from the Japanese athletic federation inviting me over to the Beppu international marathon. And, um, you know, I'd never been out of, well, I'd been to Canada, but that was about it. And, 
And the problem was it was only three weeks after Houston, but I thought, man, I'm going. And, and I finished uh, third there between, behind the two um, SOH Soul Brothers that were from Japan. Uh, I ran 212.41 there. Well, I get I get home from there, and, and the, the London Marathon was just getting ready to have their very first race. And, and uh, Chris Brasher, the race director, was the New Balance European distributor, so New Balance called me up, who I was running for at the time, and uh, said, Dick, how would you like to go to London and run the first London Marathon? I said, heck yeah. So I went over there, and in uh, I think it was late March, I, uh, I was fortunate to win the very first London Marathon, but not by myself. Uh, another runner named Inga Simonson from Oslo, Norway, him and I actually tied and were both awarded first place and that was, what, 40, 40 years ago. And Inga and I, it was really kind of I, I, ironic because my grandma came over to the United States from Norway. So I got a lot of Norwegian blood in me. And, and uh, Inga and I went on to become really, really good friends after that race. And then, um, so after London, then I had, let's see, April, May. And so I had about 10 weeks to get ready for the Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. And Scott Keenan, who started the race back in 1977, had invited me to come run the race. And and my training had gone really, really well. And um, I went into the race knowing that I had a good chance to run fast. But, you know, conditions have to be just right. And fortunately, the conditions were perfect that day. It was 48 degrees at the start, 48 degrees at the finish, and there was no wind. Uh, little fog coming in off of Lake Superior and uh, a great, great Minnesota runner, Gary Bjorkland, who, in my opinions, the best runner to ever come out of Minnesota and was one of the best runners our country's ever seen. He was the, the defending champion and ran 210-21 the year before. Well, he's in the race, so the gun goes off and BJ, that's his nickname, was BJ. BJ and I we take off. Well, about a quarter mile down the road, I look back and I couldn't see any other runners because the fog had moved in so thick. And BJ turned to me, he goes, Beards, he says, listen, buddy, he says, this is your race. I'm just here to help you however I can. And my first thought was, all right, the guy's the defending champion. He's from the, the Duluth area. The guy's just set me up for the kill. But he um, <laughs> he really did help me. And I I ended up running 209.36, which I guess they bumped it up to 209.37. But at the time, it was only nine or 10 seconds off of Bill Rogers' American record at the time. And that race in Duluth, the Grandma's Marathon, that really, really put me on the map. And then it really opened up a lot of doors. And I was fortunate to get invitations to uh, to travel all over over the world and compete and um i've been at every grandma's marathon since 1981 the last time i ran it i was i don't know it was got to be let's see 14 years ago so i was what in my mid to upper 40s something like that and um but i've, I've been back to it every year to speak at it and then uh, i do the play-by-play -play for a local radio station up in the lead vehicle so this will and unfortunately the grandma's marathon got canceled uh for this this June because of the Corona virus that's going on, but yeah. um, it'll be back bigger and better than ever next year. 
Well, and the reason that I pulled that race out before going to where everybody would absolutely expect me to go, and that is to Boston the following year, is because you are that just consummate Minnesotan. You can hear it in your voice. Like I said to you before D2 fired up the mic, I know how much civic pride you have, not just for where you grew up, but for the entire state and things that you still do to contribute to what Minnesota is so wonderfully known for is awesome. So to be able to have that kind of home state experience when you are in such pinnacle shape in your running career I knew that was really, really special. What I had forgotten about, my wife's name actually is Inga, spelled the same way as your competitor and now longtime friend from the race, I-N-G-E. So it's interesting. I had forgotten about who it was that you had tied with at that first London marathon. I'll have to remind my wife that, and I would imagine that she'll say, well, I know what a great person Dick is, but the other person had the better name. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> now she's Dutch as opposed to from Scandinavia, but at the same time, I think that there must have been some translation where it can work. Maybe it's that gender neutral name in uh, in Europe, and that's how she ended up with it. Either way, yeah. so here we go. The reality is, if we think about Duel in the Sun, and we know, and of course, we'll make sure for those who have not read it, they get indication of a number of books from us from this conversation. One of them, of course, that same title that John Brandt did use to talk about your race in 1982. You previously mentioned Alberto Salazar. Of course, others, you mentioned Boston Billy and even Frank Shorter. So you show up at the starting line of the 1982 Boston Marathon. You are among the greats, the American greats for sure. And some of the elites on this planet in that field. And as much as I could easily say, I want a blow by blow, mile by mile, footstep by footstep account of what happened. Take us, if you would, please, Dick, to the last few moments. And now what is not just running lore, but one of those things that makes us all realize how exciting sport and life in general really is. Yes. Well, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, guys, but I can remember <laughs> that race that's will be, you know, 38 years ago, like it, like I ran it this morning. So Alberto and I, you know, we were in a large pack and eventually him and I broke away at about the 17 mile point. And I was doing everything I could to, to, you know, break him through the hills and I couldn't. And, and he was always sitting right off my, uh, off my uh, right shoulder. And um, with about 900 meters to go, I had about a two arm length lead, maybe at the most. And I thought, man, I, and that's about the biggest lead I'd had all day long on him. And I thought, okay, Richard, you've got to, you've got to push now like you've never pushed before. Now saying that from about the 20 mile point on or a little after that, I, I could hardly feel my legs anymore, but the crowd noise was so loud and back then there was no fencing or anything to keep the crowds back and if people can get a picture of like the tour de france where when those those riders are riding through those small towns and the people are on top of them that's how it was at that point so the the, the noise is so loud it almost took the pain away from my legs because my ears were ringing so bad so i <laughs> i opened up just a, a a couple of strides on it and i 
I thought, go now. And I remember pushing off with my right leg. Now, remember, we're down to about 900 meters to go. And I took about two strides to try to open up that gap. And when I did, I got the biggest Charlie horse in my right hamstring. I'm sure from being dehydrated, it was a very warm, sunny day. And back then, there were no aid stations on the course. You just got fluids from people that were out there on the street handing them to you. And... Uh, so Salazar went flying by like I was standing still. I mean, he had five meters and then 10 and then 20. And at one point he had almost a hundred meter lead. And at that point, I'm thinking I'm having a bad nightmare. And, and I'm a very super positive person, but I'm thinking, am I going to even be able to finish? And, but I tell you guys, I learned more about myself in those last two, two and a half minutes of that race that has enabled me to get through way, way more difficult times in my life than that 1982 Boston Marathon. And what I learned on those streets in Boston 38 years ago is that no matter how difficult, sorry, I start getting choked up every time I do this. No matter how difficult the situation you're in is, no matter how high the so-called mountain is to climb, is that you just never, ever, ever give up. And as long as you're moving forward, towards that so-called finish line, even if it's in little bitty baby steps. And there's, al there's always that hope. And it's about believing in yourself and that, that commitment and determination and having faith and being in the right place at the right time. And as Salazar continued to get further down the, the street, I'm running along the right-hand side the best I can, which wasn't very good, working on my hamstring, trying to get the cramp to go away. When the crowd moved back to let me come by, and when they did, I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and my right foot came down into a big pothole I didn't see. Well, when I hit that pothole, I stumbled and Pertner fell to the ground. But when I Pertner fell to the ground, it jerked my right leg and it popped the knot out. So now all of a sudden, I got my stride back. But now we're down to about 600 meters to go. And I remember looking over my shoulder and I don't see any other runners coming. And I look up ahead and I could see Alberto's curly black hair amongst about eight or 10 state troopers on motorcycles kind of surrounding him, keeping the crowd back. And I thought, Dick, if you get second and give it your very, very best, you can hold your head high. But if you give up now, you're gonna regret it for the rest of your life. And honest to goodness, guys, never before or ever since had I ever was I ever given a gear like I was given at that point. And I, all I did was I started pumping my arms and lifting my legs. And the next thing I know, honestly, I felt like I was on a magic carpet. And I'll never forget when we came off of Commonwealth Avenue and we turned onto Hereford Street. Now, back then, you turned onto Hereford Street like you do now, and you get to the top of Hereford Street. And back then, there was a street called Ring Road, and you made a left-hand turn on Ring Road. And then once you made that left-hand turn, it was only about a 150-meter um, sprint to the finish line, where now, you know, it's a lot longer because they moved the, the starting up and moved the finish line back. Well, I finally, as I'm just coming up to the top of Hereford Street, now, you got to remember, I'm sure the the state troopers on the motorbikes figured Beardsley's out of the race. And as we make that left-hand turn, 
Alberto turns and the motorcycles turn, but a couple of them kind of go off to the right to kind of hold the crowds back and they didn't see me. And so I've never, ever, ever, even one second of my life ever thought about using this as an excuse because there was no excuse to use. But so many people over the years, said, oh, Dick, if those motorbikes wouldn't have got in your way, you would have won the race. Well, nobody knows that. And did they get in my way? Not really. Yes, I had to go out a little wide to get around them, but I got around them. And with a little over 100 meters left in the race, I caught back up to Alberto. And um, the, the one mistake I made, I still remember thinking, okay, Dick, when you catch back up to Alberto, you work so hard to get back up to him sit back for just a split second, catch your breath, and then sprint like crazy. Well, that was, I as I look back, I think that's the mistake I made because I caught back up to Alberto. I, I just, for a second, took a deep breath. Well, during that deep breath, Alberto put his, arm, his head down and started sprinting. And by the time I started sprinting, you know, I, uh, I ended up, you know, finishing right behind him. So Alberto ran 208.51 that day, and I ran 208.52.6, which, of course, they rounded up to 208.53. And at the time, it was the first time two men had ever gone under two hours and nine minutes in the same race. But I remember, guys, when I crossed the finish line, it's a good thing that that race wasn't another 50 or 100 meters long because I don't know if Alberto or myself would have finished. I mean, when we crossed that finish line, if there had not been volunteers there to grab us, we would have both been lying on the ground. I mean, both of us. I mean, we neither one of us had anything left at the end. And um, I know neither one of us ever ran that fast again, but uh, that race took a lot of out of me. But if I had to have one race to take everything out of me that it could, why not Why not it be the Boston Marathon? <laughs> for sure. And, and again, for those who are now hearing this story that they've just heard reference in the past, and now you've heard it not just from someone who could author it, but the person who did indeed live it. Go back, look at videos, read the accounts. It'll be such a source of inspiration for you. But then, Dick... You know, I mentioned John Brandt's work that came out in 2006, chronicled the race, and both you and Alberto before that, of course, was staying the course. And one of the reasons, and we mentioned this in our intro, you and I have talked about it, that we were just so blessed to be able to have you come on during this uncertain season, this public health challenge that was both unforeseen and so much of what we are now talking about that is unknown. You mentioned how you, in that race, when you were 900 meters behind, felt like if you kept the faith, if you gave it everything that you had, that it would get better to go for it, not to leave anything out there. And then you mentioned how at the end of that race, you and Alberto both are there lying on the pavement at the conclusion of the race, the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And you can say with absolute certainty, you gave it everything you had. You left nothing out there. There was nothing more that you could have given to the effort. And what an awesome and satisfying way for all of us to feel, perhaps after every hour, every single day, certainly after every effort that we put forth. But Absolutely. Well, and what I was yeah, going to say absolutely. is, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dick. Well, I'm just going to say, guys, 
You know, I remember when I crossed that finish line and I kind of glanced up at the clock and it was still leading 208 something. And half of me, seriously, half of me had never been so excited and happy about anything in my life. And the other half of me had never been so disappointed. I'm thinking, I just ran a 208 marathon, but I got second. <laughs> and I, I am thinking something's wrong with that picture. And guys, I remember this. After I met with the, the media people for a couple of hours in the garage of the Prudential Insurance Building afterwards, and I finally got back up to my hotel room, and I'm soaking in the tub trying to, uh, to get over my soreness and whatnot. And I, I remember going back in my mind thinking, what could I have done differently to where I finished 1.6 seconds in front of Alberto? And I went back to the little town of Hopkinton, and I literally retraced every step of every mile from Hopkinton to downtown Boston. And when I got all done analyzing that in my mind, I was smiling from ear to ear because there was absolutely nothing I could have done different. That day, like I said, both Alberto and I, we didn't give it 90% or 95% or 110% because that's impossible. But that day, we both gave it 100%. And no matter what you do in life, at the end of the day, if you know that today, whatever it is with your family, with your business, with a, a running race, if at the end of the day, you know you gave it your very, very best, then how can you be disappointed in that? Well, and what a great reminder for all of us and for those who need it again, go back and listen to that once more and realize that that is true. You can still hear the satisfaction in Dick's voice all these years later, even though he did have that 1.6 seconds that separated him from the wreath that day. And yet, Dick, and what I was going to say earlier, what we know now from you, and of course, what you know from the way that you've responded and your life, the book that was written by you in 2004, Staying the Course, A Runner's Toughest Race, wasn't really about that 1982 race, that day, April 19th, and that duel in the sun with Alberto. Being on top of the world and recognizing that you gave the best that you could on that day didn't mean that everything going forward was going to go your way. Sure, the media enjoyed no. your time. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah. if we think if we think about the years that followed, and I think the correlation it has with the time that we're in right now. Obviously, you come home, you get back to where you really want to be. You're back to being on the farm and in the outdoors. And some would say, gosh, is there any other way? Life is grand. Life is great for Dick Beardsley. But it didn't quite play out that way. No, you know, after um, after the 1982 Boston Marathon and, you know, um, I remember, I think it was Sports Illustrated or some big time magazine had an article and many of the the people said not only will Dick Birdsley make the 1984 Olympic team, but a number of them said I was going to, you know, medal at the games. And, and unfortunately, I blew up my Achilles tendon not once but twice um, about a year before the Olympics. And, and I wasn't able to com even compete in the trials or the Olympics. And I, I finally got my Achilles healed enough after two surgeries to where I, I qualified again for the 88 Olympic trials. And, but I never could get back to that same level again. And I ran the trials and didn't run very good in 1988, but 
But you know what? I, I was 32. I think I just turned 32, which isn't old to, in today's standards for marathoning. But I thought, you know what? It's time to move on. I'm, I'm still going to run, just not at that high level anymore. And, and, you know, came back to my Minnesota dairy farm. And, and my goal was to milk a bunch of cows, do my fishing guide business, raise a bunch of kids, and, and life was going to be grand. And it absolutely was until November 13th. And I won't go into great details because it takes a long time to tell that story. But long story short is on November 13th in 1989, I, uh, I just got done milking the cows and I went to do some other things and I hopped up on my, one of my tractors and I started it up and I throttled it all the way down so that engine was snorting like a freight train. And I walked to the back of the tractor and I pulled a lever. And when I pulled that lever, it started to rotate what's called a power takeoff. It's a long steel shaft, which one end hooks to the back of the tractor and the other end hooks to another piece of farm equipment. And it spins at about 600 revolutions a minute. Well, I turned that on, the shaft started to spin and I turned and when I did, somehow it must've caught my coveralls I had on and, and it, uh, it, Wrap, it started wrapping my leg up around this spinning shaft, like taking a piece of string and wrapping it around your finger, my left leg. And then when it got all the way up to my where it, up to my uh, groin area, it started taking my whole body and whipping me around in circles and each time slamming me into the ground. And I could feel myself losing consciousness. And, and I honestly thought I'd never see my um, family again. And somehow... From the grace of God, I somehow was able to hit the the shutoff handle, and and um, I um, was able to somehow get it turned off. And I remember to this day, I don't remember how I got out of the tangled mess of machinery, but I was standing next to my tractor, and it had pretty much ripped, tore all my clothes off. I was pretty much buck naked, and anyhow, I ended up getting multiple head contusions. I'd broken all the ribs on my right side punctured my right lung, broke my right arm, had a piece of steel driven into my left chest and my left leg was just kind of hanging on by threads. And But I had great doctors and surgeons and nurses and physical therapists and nutritionists and neighbors and people I didn't even know and, and uh, the help of the good Lord and, and a desire to want to get better. And fortunately, after many weeks uh, being in the hospital, not once, but twice. And they thought they're going to have to amputate my left leg. But I was I was back um, milking cows and actually got back to running again. And for the next couple of years, everything uh, was pretty much, you know, back to normal again. And then, unfortunately, in the July of 1992, I got in a real bad car accident. A lady ran a stop sign on a country road and T-boned our my car and totaled out my car and busted up my back. And, you know, I was back in the hospital for, um, I don't know, a long time and with multiple surgeries. But again, I was fortunate to recover from that and actually get back to running again. And, and everything was, again, pretty much back to normal until that following winter, I was running down a street in Fargo, North Dakota, and um, I got hit from behind by a truck and they found me laying in a snowbank, and again, back in the hospital, more surgeries. And But fortunately, again, I recovered, and then I was back home 
hiking with my little boy Andy in Lake Bemidji State Park. In fact, I'm looking out onto Lake Bemidji right now from our bed and breakfast. And and um, anyhow, I was hiking and up on this little narrow path. Luckily, my son Andy and his little buddy were about 20 meters behind me, but I got to almost to the very top and I took a step and I must have been on some weak ground and a big chunk of this ground broke away and I ended up falling off a cliff and back in the hospital. And so it was kind of one thing after another and, um, you know, lots of surgeries. And, but again, I, I got recovered from that. And, um, but unfortunately I, and I don't use this as an excuse at all, but with all those surgeries and mishaps and whatnot, I was on a lot of, a lot of narcotic pain medication and um, back in the early 90s, I got um, I got addicted to the narcotic painkillers, and um, it makes it makes all those accidents seem like a walk in the park. It got to the point where um, even after I didn't need the drugs anymore because of the pain I was having, because of all the surgeries and the accidents, for some reason I liked how it made me feel and. Um, when the doctor, when one particular doctor wouldn't give me any more prescriptions, I'd go to another doctor and then another and another. And, and back then, you got to remember, none of the prescriptions and the doctor's orders were computerized. It was they just hand you a piece of paper with a prescription on it. You take it to the drugstore where now you can't do that because everything's computerized, which is a really, really good thing. So it doesn't matter if you get a prescription and. Bemidji or Atlanta, when they type your name in on the computer, it'll come up. And so that isn't possible anymore. But when I couldn't get any more doctors to give me prescriptions, you know, I started doing something that I can't even imagine thinking about doing, let alone actually do. You know, I started to forge my own prescriptions. And, you know, you're listening to somebody that I, as a kid growing up, as an adult, I mean, I'd never, ever ever got in any trouble. I'd never stolen as much as a piece of bubble gum. And here I was now all of a sudden writing prescriptions for narcotics, knowing that it was a felony. I could go to prison. I could lose everything I'd ever worked for in my life. But at that point, all that mattered to me was to get the drugs, to take the drugs and make sure I didn't get caught. And what I'm telling your listeners about this now doesn't even scratch the surface. I know when I speak at a treatment center or recovery place somewhere around the country, just that part of my life takes a good hour. And by August of 1996, I was taking upwards of 80 pills a day of Percocet, Demerol, and and Valium. And thankfully, before I died, um, on September 30th of 1996, I got caught. And I knew I was in a lot of trouble, but I was so thankful <clears throat> and I was so blessed that I was still alive. I knew the only chance I had, if there was any chance at all to get better, was to be 100% truthful and take responsibilities for my actions. And, and that's what I did. Um, I had to meet with two federal drug enforcement agents the day I got caught because I was writing so many prescriptions, they thought I was actually a dealer. And when they told me that, I was blubbering so hard, 
I could barely breathe. And I swore to them, not one pill did I give or sell to anybody. I was too selfish. If I got them, I took them. And thankfully, they believed me. And um, I ended up getting five years of probation and 460 hours of community service. But they took me right to the hospital in Fargo, North Dakota. And for the next 10 days, two weeks, I was um, in a on the psychiatric unit locked up in that floor. That's where they put you back then. And they, they put me on a drug called methadone. And it's what they put heroin addicts on. And they thought that would help me get off these other opioids where that was even worse. I, and I got addicted to the methadone, even under the doctor's care. And they tried to wean me off of it the first time and the withdrawals were so bad, they put me back on it. So they tried to wean me off it a little bit slower and the second time was even worse. So they put me back on it and they sent me home thinking, well, maybe if he goes through the withdrawals at home, it'll be a little bit easier. And the third time was the absolute worst. So finally, my, my family loaded me up on a Greyhound bus on a Sunday night at 7.30 in the little town I'm from up in Northwest Minnesota. And I got down to downtown Minneapolis about 1.30 in the morning and a friend of mine picked me up and took me to the University of Minnesota hospital. And I remember them taking me there and I'm lying in the bed in absolute agony. And the pain in my arms and my legs from the withdrawals and my bones ache so bad. I can honestly say if I'd have had access to a saw, I honestly think I might have considered sawing off my own arms and legs. It would have had to felt better. And the next morning, the doctor walked in and he said, Dick, methadone withdrawal is one of the worst things that a human being can go through. He says, you're going to feel like you're going to die. At times, you're going to wish you could die. But I promise you, Dick, we will not let you die. But his next words were, but the next seven to 10 days are going to be pure hell. And for the next about week, I never slept one minute. I was lying there in agony. And in the morning when it was time to get up, it was a struggle just to get my legs on the outside of the bed and to put on a clean pair of pants or a clean shirt. It seemed like it took me forever, but I never missed a meeting with my group to try to learn how to get better. And there were mornings that I was so sick from the withdrawals that I could not stand up and walk down the hallway to get to my group meeting. And one morning I'm crawling along the hallway trying to get down to my group meeting and I blacked out. I have no idea how long I was laying there on the floor, but when I woke up, I was, I was laying in my own vomit. And I remember looking up and saying, God, please God, either just take me right now or please God help get me better. And that night I actually slept just a little bit and the next day a little bit more and a little bit more and after i'd been there for about three weeks i started to feel what it was like to be me dick beardsley without those drugs in my body and i liked how it made me feel was it easy absolutely not it's one of the toughest things i've ever ever had to go through in my life but the last little over 23 years i've had of sobriety from those narcotics have been some of the best 23 years I've ever, ever had. And you know, when I look back, guys, after that Boston Marathon, and I think I had just turned either 25 or 26, 
And after I finally got recovered from that race the, a month or two after the race, I remember thinking, well, the good thing about that race is I know one thing, I'll never, ever have to go through anything more difficult than that in my life. And I really believed that at that point. You know, again, I was young. Of course, I was wrong about that. And then after all those accidents and all those surgeries, and finally, once I got through that and got all recovered, I'm thinking, well, I sure would never want to go through that again. But the good part is I know for a fact I will never, ever have to go through anything more difficult than that. But of course, I was wrong. And then after I had about three, four years of sobriety from the narcotics, I remember thinking, well, I would never, ever want to put my family through or myself what I went through. But the good thing is, and you always have to try to find something good, even in bad, is that I know absolutely unequivocally I will never, ever, ever have to go through anything worse than this in my life again. I would have, And I would have bet my life on it. But unfortunately, once again, I was wrong. Um, my, my son, Andy, who we adopted from Honduras when he was a little baby, my first wife, Mary and I, and he was my, my pride and joy, our pride and joy. He was my little fishing buddy and just a great kid. You could take him into a room of grumpy old men and in five minutes, he'd have him laughing. And when he was 21 years old, he joined the United States army. And for him, it, it was such an honor for him to have served our country. And I was never so proud of anybody in my life than I was of my son, Andy. Well, then he got deployed to Iraq. And of course, being his dad, I was worried stiff about him. And I'm sure I can only imagine what the thoughts were in his mind. And he was a gunner on Black Hawk helicopters over there. And then when he wasn't doing that, he was in charge of a crew that when the choppers would come in from the field, they would get the wounded out do a quick mechanical check and a refuel and get the chopper back up in the air. Well, he had to see some things and he had to do some things that weren't real pleasant. And after about a year and a half, he, he made it back home safely, but he suffered from post-traumatic um, stress disorder. And um, four, four years ago, this past October, my son Andy took his life. And um, I was absolutely devastated. I mean, um, I remember <clears throat> I just got back from a guide trip and I walked in the house and my wife, Jill, who was Andy's stepmom, and they were close. I walked in the house and I noticed there was a police officer and a social worker standing in the living room. And Jill turned to me white as a ghost and she says, you need to sit down. So I sat down in a chair and they came over and told me what had happened. And I, honest to God, I fell out of my chair and I was hyperventilating. And I really thought I was having just a super bad dream. But of course I wasn't. And um, I miss my son, Andy, every waking moment of every day. It's not that I dwell on him every single time. And the thoughts I have of him are all good thoughts. But the one thing that brings me joy and and hope and leaves me with peace is that knowing that 
Andy no longer has those demons. He's no longer afraid of the dark because there is no darkness anymore. And knowing that someday <clears throat> that someday I'll be able to wrap my arms around him again and give him a big hug brings me great joy and leaves me with wonderful peace. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it hasn't always been pleasant, but you know what? Every one of us, every single one of us goes through difficult times in our lives. And, um, and you think you're not going to be able to make it, but yet somehow we do. And, um, and that's what I have to know that my son, Andy, the last thing he'd want me to do is to wallow in sadness and and not go on with my life. And uh, so that's what I've tried to do. And I've tried to share his story and my story with others in hopes that maybe by me being able to share with others, it might be able to help them. <clears throat> Sorry, gosh, get through difficult times in their in their lives. And um, as you said, towards the front end of our interview, guys, and I really do this every single morning, and it's helped me a lot in that, and I'll repeat it again, but every morning I try to wake up with a smile on my face, enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. And those four things have helped me through incredible difficult times, that's for sure. Well, and, and Dick, I know in addition to those things that you do, that you know, but I will remind you, and I'll say this for everyone, that the courage, not just that you've shown, but that Andy showed as a soldier, as obviously someone who had the most generous spirit that we can imagine, that and along with those other things that you do, you make a difference in the lives of others. I've read your story. I've heard your story. I've spent time around you. There are things that now in 2020, we know so much more about than when you were in the midst of when we think of addiction. We just have so much more information than what we did then. When we think about the other side of pain medication, we just know so much more today than what we did then. When we hear PTSD, we're still learning every single day. It seems like with every single deployment and every single celebration we have of troops coming home, we learn more. When we think of suicide and those who we love and just as a father, my son is 17 and I sit here with tears in my eyes because I cannot imagine being in your shoes and yet I'm inspired by the way you honor your son with what you do. And I am empowered by not only the way you tell your story for the benefit of others, but with the courage that is required to be as transparent and candid as you are. And I would say on behalf of all of our listeners, but if nothing else, from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you for that example, not as a runner, not as someone who shares certain things in including our role as a husband or a father or as someone filled with faith, but just as an individual who knows he needs others 
that he can look to, to find inspiration. And you're one of those persons for me. So thank you for what you do and what you've done. And my goodness, I have no idea how to tell a story the way you do, but I can also tell you, I can't imagine living the story that you've lived. And now as you look at some of the things that you do, and gosh, I can't wait to share this with those who haven't through our show notes, Dick mentioned that he's been kiting fishing trips. He still does that. DickBeardsley.com shows so many things that he's involved with. I cannot encourage our runners as much as any website we've ever given to our listeners. Right now, I will tell you, you need to check this website out to see how full of a life that Dick lives. We will be the first to tell you, life isn't always great. It's a good life for sure, but it is not always easy. And to see how even you can be part of a fishing trip with Dick. But then you mentioned the bed and breakfast that you and Jill operate, Dick. I mean, it looks like such a special place, but not just because of the decorations and the setting. And like you said, being able to overlook Lake Bemidji itself, but it just looks like it's filled with so much hospitality and care and love. And yet that doesn't surprise me at all, having interacted with Jill and knowing you. So if we look at all these things, I see the videos of you playing guitar and making others laugh. I, I know that on YouTube, we can find all kinds of Dick, Dick Beardsley speeches in corporate environments, like you said, perhaps in treatment centers, at schools, and bringing a message, not just of positivity, but also of purpose to people's lives as we look at all that you're still doing and how thankful you are, I know, for being able to do that. What are some of the things that you would just leave us with, especially in this season, as we tape first episode in April of 2020, why there is so much reason, and you know this as well as anybody perhaps that I know, that there is reason for hope. Why is it that you would say that is so true? It, it really is. And, you know, what, what we're, the whole world is going through now, and especially in our country, the United States, with this coronavirus. And, and I know a lot of people are upset because, you know, we have to the stay-at-home policy in many, many of our states. And, and you've got to keep your distance from other people. But I, I look at it as, as a, a real positive thing that has come from this, if you can find anything positive, is that it's really brought families back together families are actually now having to spend time together they're they have supper together again and and they're 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 playing board games and they're they're talking maybe watching television together whatever it might be but they're they're having to do it together and i think once we get over all of this and we get back on the the good side and hopefully normalcy sooner than later here in our country that the one good thing that will come out of this is the show of love and joy and appreciation and never taking our family or our lives for granted. Um, because sometimes when things are going so very, very well, sometimes we can forget about how we got there and, and, and the love that we have for our family and our friends. And, and when something like this pandemic that's come here, it really, it really showcases how important family and, and friends are and, and that together as a family, as a state, as a country, that we can do this together, we can get through this. And hopefully down the road, we're going to be able to look back and say um, some good came from this. And something usually always does good, 
something good usually always does come from something bad. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to realize that. And sometimes we have to squint our eyes real, real hard to see light at the end of the tunnel. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. That is awesome. Dick, I'm going to have you do one more thing before we close this down, if this is all right. I love the way you interact yeah. with others. We're going to give away an autographed copy of your book to one of our lucky listeners. We oftentimes will come up with our own trivia questions relating to different things that we have going on in our sport or in our community. I actually want you to take a second. Think about a trivia question. It might have to do with your running career. It might have to do with Lake Bemidji or Minnesota. It might have to do with certain things that you've learned along the way. I want you to think of a trivia question. I'm hoping you would be kind enough to ask it of our audience. Do not give us the answer. We'll do that off air so that we have it. And then the first person who does send the answer, the correct answer to podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com will get an autographed copy of Dick's book, Stain the Course, A Runner's Toughest Race. And so, Dick, I'm buying you a little bit of time so you can be thinking of that trivia question. And before we ask him what that might be, again, I cannot encourage you enough to go to dickbeardsley.com. You will be inspired not just by Dick's story, but by all that he is doing. Obviously, he has so much to share. And now, Dick, can you share a trivia question of your choosing for our audience for that autographed copy of your book? Okay, since I know you get a lot of runners that um, that will be listening to this, how about this? It's it's not super hard, but they might have to dig a little bit. Okay, Alberto won the 1982 Boston Marathon. I was second. Who, what runner was the third place finisher of the 1982 Boston Marathon? There it is. What a great question stated with eloquence and clarity. Get your research on, friends. First, to get us the answer at podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. That autographed copy will be yours. He is Dick Beardsley. Dick, you are a dear person to so many, including those who are just meeting you for the first time today. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I know we're better for it. And more importantly than that, I know we will use it as a way to make this season and all of those days before us even better. We cannot thank well, you Well, thank enough. you, Mike. It's uh, It's been a true pleasure to be on and let me share a, a few stories with you. And I just want to tell all the listeners, hang in there, stay the course, and God bless you. Thank you. God bless you too, Dick. And we'll be right back right after this brief message. Big Peach Running Company wants to support you during these challenging times. We know that getting outdoors for a run or walk is important to your health and well-being. Many of you may start running for the first time or after a long break. With orders by the governor to shelter in place, Big Peach Running Company will be closed. However, we are now offering a virtual fit analysis using GoToMeeting. Simply schedule a time through our website and we'll help you get the right shoe for you. You can make your purchase over the phone or online. As always, thank you for supporting us, and remember, may your best miles be those covered on foot. And welcome back to the Run ATL podcast. You could tell, perhaps, by my own emotion, that story connected with me in so many ways. And D2, I've heard so much of it before. It gets me every time, and yet I am so ready. No matter what corona throws at us, we're going to get past this. 
Yeah, I mean, there, like I said at the beginning, I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. There's lessons about just going out there and, you know, taking a chance. You never know when you step out of your comfort zone what you can achieve. But there's also that resilience, you know, and it's one of the reasons why for me, ultra running is, you know, or any really true distance running is just a metaphor for life. You have to struggle. You have to push through it. But in the end, you cross that finish line, you get through it, and it just takes time. And um, we'll all have those highs, and we'll all have those lows. And for me, you know, that ultra-distance run is is a metaphor for life, and that's how we kind of get through it. Well, and don't forget that trivia question that Dick asked us. We have that autographed copy. Could be yours. Don't forget to send your response to info at big, or I'm sorry, podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com. That's podcast at bigpeachrunningco.com runningco.com. One thing D2 will remind everyone, whether we do it virtually or whether we get a chance to do this in person, the Run ATL Summer 10K Training Program, registration continues. Yes, it does. And at this point, um, you know, the lottery is closed. So basically, you know, word got out, you know, uh, Track Club sent a, a notice out to, uh, and shared it through email and through social media that basically, obviously, because of the situation right now, registrations is down. It did not sell out. It's at 40,000, you know, as opposed to 60,000. Still an impressive effort. It's, Thank you, Atlanta, for continuing to support that. Exactly. Event. It just shows that there's optimism out, out there that we'll get past this by July and that we'll all be running together shoulder to shoulder down Peachtree Road. Um, so anyone that went into the lottery actually got in, you'll be, you know, you should have officially gotten notified, but you're in members who registered are in and the track club will open it up again, closer to 4th of July to get more, um, you know, registrations in where people may feel more, uh, comfortable at that point, you know, signing up for a race. So we still have our training program that, you know, will coincide, you know, whether you're running a 5k or a 10k on the 4th of July or anytime near there. Um, so that's, we're about a month away at this point from the start of that. At this point, we're still planning on doing it in store. However, if we are still sheltered in place, it's going to be done virtually. So we're not going to cancel it. We do have our sponsors who will come on board and will help us out. I'll, I'll give a little tease there here. Um, got confirmation from, you know, Garmin that we may be giving away a GPS watch to participants. So if that's an incentive and it might be more than one, but your odds are pretty good of, of getting a very, you know, you know, who gives away a $300, $400, you know, GPS watch. So on a free program, no less. So that's the incentive. We'll see what else we can uh, get from our uh, from our sponsors to help out with. But we've got Facebook pages, Strava pages for those that have already signed up, or if you're signing up here soon, we'll get an email out with all the details and links to all those pages and Facebook groups. Right on. That is so cool and sure. Check that out. You will not be disappointed. Like you said, that is a free program. I just mentioned thank you, Atlanta, for registering for the AJC Peachtree Road Race, all 40,000 of you. That shows commitment also to get to the other side of this. Now I have a request. Maybe we'll call this a very brief soapbox session for you. We sometimes get comments where new runners say, gosh, I'm a new runner. Thanks for everything that you guys are doing on the Run ATL podcast. I love taking it with me. Helps me get me through some of those early miles. And then there are plenty of you who have been committed to your pedestrian active lifestyle for quite some time with all of the new people who are coming into the sport, whether you are one of them or whether you are a grizzled veteran like D2 and like I am. Here's my request as I was on what is referred to as the dirty belt line this morning going from 
Pryor Street all the way to Glenwood Park and back. I saw so many of you. It was awesome to see that many runners and walkers. And yet at the same time, I will tell you, not enough smiling, not enough greeting, not enough good morning for me. I am a genuinely enthusiastic person. And so if you are one of those people who are socially distancing just the way you should when you are running and yet you see another runner or walker or perhaps just someone in your neighborhood, please, please, please say hello, good morning, good evening, whatever it may be. Maybe it's just a smile, a nod of encouragement. That's what this community is all about, whether on the Beltline or a back road. We are all in this together, and I certainly believe that Running City USA is not just because of the number of miles, but also the number of smiles that we give each other. D2, it's a good reminder for me and now all of us because of the fact that we are gonna have more runners and walkers than ever before. And I hope we also have more friendliness and more neighborly behavior than we've ever had in this sport before as well. Yes, and I, and, and I want to give a shout out to the neighborhood where I run. Uh, and it's not just my neighborhood. I've seen through social um, uh, media that there's other neighborhoods where kids are doing this. But Asher Park, I went out running you know, this week. And on the sidewalk with chalk, there were uplifting, inspiring messages. Uh, this one, uh, when nothing goes right, go left. <laughs> you know, um, smile. You know, it's, you know, um, take life one step at a time. Uh, smile, the prettiest thing you wear. So very encouraging, and it was nice. I had to, uh, you know, I'm running, and typically when you're running, you're just kind of focused. And you know, I actually stopped and took pictures of this and shared That's it. Awesome. And uh, I know that there's, you know, many neighborhoods out there where the kids are out there, where they're, you know, with the chalk and they're leaving, creating, you know, basically street art on the sidewalk, leaving encouraging messages, and that is just so awesome and uplifting. And that put a smile on my face. So, you know, kudos to all of you that are doing this. But to Mike's point, let's let's keep it friendly. Let's keep smiling. Let's, you know, just wave to one another. Um, we're all in this together. And, you know, we're all just going to come out of this a lot stronger and a lot better and a lot closer. Very, very true. And with that, there it is. That is another episode all wrapped up. I do not doubt that we'll be back perhaps still in the midst of this. And yet at the same time, one thing that never changes, our wish for you, it is so true. We hope that all of your miles would be those that you can say, my best miles, they're the ones I've covered on. Today.